Well, hello and welcome to our podcast. We're all ears. We're delighted to welcome you here today. I'm here with my colleague Rob. Say hello, Rob. Hello. And say hello, Liz. Hello. So nice to have you both. Thank you for joining me. Um, it's quite an adventure, this podcast malarkey, but I'm hoping it'll be of benefit to a lot of people. Anyway, today's question, which I'm very excited about, is how open is an open fit? Um, so I guess my leading point and question here, Rob, is uh, how big's your vent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this came in from um, uh, an NHS site that will remain unnamed. Um, but it's a really good question because we... I mean, when I worked in the NHS, um, there was a point where you just said, well, open is determined by the thing that you put in somebody's ear. It says on the packet, like, this is an open dome, this is a closed dome. And then we then we get into molds and it's like, well, it's got a one mil vent or a three mil vent. Um, so I guess the, some of the stuff that we make allows us to run some measurements to find out objectively how open something is. But the question sort of um, then got a bit more detailed after that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Surely it's obvious. Like if you're running your unaided response, for example, you then do your occluded response. Surely it's as easy as that to determine whether it's open or not. Yeah, so that's that's sort of where the question came from. So um, for anybody who who doesn't know, one of the reasons we do um, our unaided response during real ear measurements and then our occluded response is because one of them is a measurement of the open ear canal with nothing else in it, and then the occluded response is with whatever we're planning on fitting but switched off because there are changes that will take place when we block the ear up, and that we should be able to look at those two curves and decide whether something is open or closed. But that's where the person wanted like a protocol or a, or a threshold of saying, well, what am I looking for to say this is definitely uh, open and or closed? Because it affects how they're then going to fit the, the hearing aid. And that point when in REMS, when we're comparing the unaided gain and the occluded gain, is the only time that we're objectively measuring how much sound or, or how much venting there is occurring for this person. Yeah, because um, basically, the, I guess the point is that you can fit something that says open on the packet, um, but actually if it ends up in a really small ear and gets all squashed up by that ear, um, then it ends up completely occluding. You know, we don't always achieve the venting we, are, we think we're achieving. And that's especially true when it comes to fitting with domes, and, and ricks are so popular these days. Um, I think it's become more and more of a, of a kind of talking point. Yeah, so where this came from was um, we, Liz and I were um, asked, well, we went along to a presentation about REMS, and one of the points was um, you should use um, what we call open REM calibration. So um, there's actually a, a sort of history of this where the issue that we come across is that if you're fitting something that is open, um, some of that amplification that you're putting in that person's ear could escape from their ear while you're delivering them a sound. And then that amplification will throw off the calibration of your system. So you deliver a sound to somebody and our REM caller tells you what you got at that person. You, you asked for 65 dB, we make sure you get 65 dB. But if you amplify that in somebody's ear and some of that amplification leaks, then it thinks it's getting slightly more than that. And that's where actually um, this process of, of open REM calibration didn't exist um, and then had to be invented. So so when do we use it was the, was the question. Yeah, and I want to know as well, how easy was it to go away and get references and resources um, with regards to this question? Yeah, so that's, a, that's probably the best bit of my job, I think, is somebody says, um, 
you know, I want to know this. And I go, well, here's the answer that we give. And they go, yeah, but why? And I go, good point. Why? Um, and then it's a bit like you end up down a rabbit hole. So um, so I, I had heard a rumor that it was um, it was Dr. Scully who had said that um, that it was this sort of. I'm going to butt in there. I don't think anyone said that. <laughs> Yeah, I heard a rumour was a way of saying, I got it in my head <laughs> that it was Dr. Scully that had said it. And it wasn't. Um, uh, she very kindly got back to us and said, yeah, this this wasn't me, um, <laughs> which is nice of her. Um, but I And I obviously felt really embarrassed for asking. Um, but I couldn't find any... I, I could see referenced in lots of places. You know, we had a look at the, uh, the Oticon cookbook and we had a look at some really solid, um, you know, uh, verification textbooks and guidelines. And everyone said it was a problem, but no Nobody gave us a rule for when to use open REM calibration. But what is the rule? Like if you're an NHS audiologist or you're a private practitioner, what is the rule for an open fit? So there is some guidance in the BSA procedure for verification using REMS. And it does stipulate that if the REOG is a flat curve or, or drops into the negative value, then that would be classed as occluded. But if it's in the plus, then that's an open fitting. But we couldn't find the evidence, like how how did they come to this decision? Because the problem um, from my tiny brain's perspective was, well, REOG, occluded gain, is just the gain that's added on to the input signal. So when the input signal matches the what you've recorded, so if I put 65 dB of a certain spectrum into your ear, and that's exactly what I record, then there's no gain being added and gain is a zero value. So your ear has not added anything on to that signal, but it all got successfully into your ear, so surely it can all get successfully back out again. And that's where we started to go down the rabbit hole of where did this zero dB line gain come from? But I think we thought that just because the the OG, the uh, occluded gain response was a flat line, it didn't mean there was no sound leaking. It just meant that enough sound had got through to the ear. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> you, see, you see the problem that we encountered or we were immediately... We, the, the question started out so simple of surely someone must know at what point, and, and surely of all people, natives should know at what point you use open REM calibration. We, we make the calibration, surely we know when to use it. And officially the line is, you know, if, if your OG looks a lot like or looks similar to your uh, unaided gain, um, then then use your open REM calibration. But that wasn't a number I could give somebody. Um, and, and I wanted to give somebody this zero dB gain line, but I didn't know where I could back that up from. And we did we did eventually find the answer. So for me, that seems odd, because if you are doing a fitting you and you know you've got to be within plus or minus, is it 5 dB? Yeah. So what's the difference? Why can't you say, well, if your occluded response is plus or minus 5 dB or less, then it's open, surely? I think there was a time during this research where we were under the impression that as long as we were more than a few dB below the unaided gain, then that would be enough to prevent... That would be sufficient, yeah, to, to so that it wouldn't interfere with the calibration. Which is wrong. <laughs> that was that was not correct. <laughs> and this is where things become quite tricky because I guarantee you there will be a like an NHS site out there somewhere or a private dispenser out there who has heard a rule somewhere, um, but doesn't quite know where it comes from. And this is one of my my passions in life is um, 
to to be able to reference everything like i i almost get in trouble chasing stuff where someone says yeah well this is the way we do it and it's like yeah but why did we do that so i could have really easily we could have got back to this person and said yeah it's zero db on the on the game line if it's anything above that then uh then go ahead and use uh, open fit but i really wanted to be able to go a bit further for this person and say yeah but why like where does this come from what's the what's the the, the thinking behind this um and fortunately um, a, a very kind american came to our our savior what do you think is the consequence of not mm. taking this into account correctly? Like, what, what do you think, Liz? Yeah, why is this so important? Um, so when we're performing our real measures and, and we're trying to make sure that the, the uh, output of the hearing aid is delivering exactly what we intended it to, we're matching our output to our targets, what, what is the risk of not using the open REM calibration when we should? Um, so... In a normal oracle system, you present your sound through the loudspeaker and, and the reference microphones at the patient measure that SPL and check that the signal we're delivering is the correct intensity. But if you are fitting a really open hearing aid, then when you come to matching your response curves to your targets and your aided response tab, there's a risk that some of the sound produced by the hearing aid can leak out of the ear through the vents and get into that reference microphone. And then the level of, of db being measured at the reference mic is is wrong so this the the end result of this is that you end up chasing a target that you never get to because you um, apply more amplification to the hearing aid to try and achieve the target that therefore makes the sound leakage worse more sound gets back to the reference microphone the system thinks it's louder so it turns itself down so the more you amplify the hearing aid the quieter and quieter the speaker gets and you end up chasing a target and never get there but that was part of the problem right is what to what how big is this error going to be like what's the risk here because actually the question came from a pediatric site so the question was not necessarily like because i guess what is the downside of just using stored equalization all the time is that you have to ask the patient to sit really still and you can't ask kids to sit still during a rem so that that was the the tricky bit i guess is at what point do we transition from doing a couple of base fitting to a rem and at what point do we think we can get away with doing a rem with normal equalization or stored equalization and we should probably cover what stored equalization is, but I've just remembered that we actually tried to create or, or kind of simulate this problem. Was that on your ear or was it on a dummy ear? We used um, we used a, like a, a cavity that was the, the right shape and size of an ear um, to basically try and see this problem, to see if we could chase a target and, and find out what the degree of problem was. Um, and um, Dr. Mueller in, in the US had done this a lot more scientifically than we had. Um, on a on a bunch of, of ears and people and hearing aids, um, and and came up with a I think the number was something like you can come up with a five dB error um, overall if you haven't taken into account the right equalization. So stored equalization is the word the, the general term for what we call open REM calibration in the the REM system, and basically it's a way of um, rather than monitoring a sound all the time. Uh, you play a sound and check that level and then you use that calibration value for the rest of the time. So it's just really important that the person doesn't move and the sound field doesn't change after you've done that calibration point. But that solves the, the open REM problem. That solves the open leakage problem. My fear, let's say I'm a, either a, a, just started an introduction to audiology, I'm fairly new, or even if I'm proficient and in a rush, which is always a mistake to make, um, how on earth could I tell the difference in response between a crushed REM probe tube and an occluded fit? Or is that, am I just thinking way too deep? No, that's a good point, because we tend to say um, your unaided gain 
is the first um, it, your unaided gain is the first point you'd notice if you'd blocked up the probe tube because then the unaided gain wouldn't be there as the ear should give it to you it would be it would be too flat um, but if you crush the probe tube with a with a really tight fitting mold for example um, then you would see the the response drop you would then go on to do your rem and be suspicious as to why you weren't getting anything else through the probe tube so you wouldn't necessarily catch that i don't think at the occluded gain point but yeah, good point. It's it's about those little decisions that we make about whether we're seeing like an acoustic uh, consequence or whether we've whether we've not put something in the right place or something has happened. The probe tubes are not as flimsy as they look. It would be like a tight fitting mold or something to crush it, rather than um, where this usually comes out with open fits, where it's it's big vents or, or molds or whatever uh, or, or domes even. Liz, you said something interesting before that um, open fits were becoming more popular in ricks, etc. Um, is that from your experience in the private market or is this more NHS now? Definitely the private market, but I think um, slim slim tubes are quite big in, in NHS departments now. So they have, they pose similar challenges in terms of, of, of the dome. So you can fit what you think is going to be a, a dome that occludes the ear a lot. And, and depending on that patient's ear canal and, and how that size is compared to the dome, actually you can end up fitting leaving quite quite significant kind of unintentional vents yeah we um we face the challenge as audiologists to fit something that person is happy to wear so usually that leads us down the route of fitting something thinner or slimmer that the person's happy to to have rather than a tube or a mold for example and then there's this other angle of but are we giving them scientifically what they need so the more we occlude near and block sound in the, the happier the amplification is but then you also get problems with like the occlusion effect and, and people's voices not sounding right so there are other issues with um with open or closed but but yeah slimmer and, and thinner fittings are i think are, are popular everywhere so a question to both of you if i'm fitting a bte with a slim tube with a dome what is the danger or what is the risk between a click and fit scenario or an in situ fit and a REM? Oh, silence. Oh, the big question there. Well, so like a click and fit is based on predictions, how much sound is going to leak out of the air, how much sound is going to arrive naturally through the venting potentially we don't really understand how different manufacturers predict that in different ways so it's not such a standardized approach whereas when we're using rems it's an absolute measurement it's the only way to know for sure what we've delivered to that patient yeah it's what i always cringely refer to as real money uh when you do a rem you're you're measuring spl in the ear and taking everything into account um, so we've come across this problem um, again recently with um, people doing more coupler-based fittings is how we try and equate the, the calculations and decisions we make theoretically uh, compared to being able to just measure something and say, well, it sort of doesn't matter how we got here. We are achieving in SPL what we wanted to in the ear, taking into account how much sound is both leaking from the amplification, but also arriving naturally directly from from the sound source. So yeah, that's the that's the advantage of, of reming as opposed to um, as opposed to clicking and fitting. People are getting custom fit domes, right? So where does that fit in? And if a manufacturer's fittings are sort of based on a standard, not a customized delivery for the patient, where, where how how are we meant to even guess what the venting would be for the manufacturer's sheet? Yeah, so that's why it's so important to measure because things like residual ear canal volume, um, receiver depth you know how close is the receiver to the eardrum these things make really big differences as well um, so predicting it's more of a challenge but the other point I was going to make was particularly with the um, with domes 
is the reliability of and, and the variation you get depending on how the patient has put it into their ear. So you might have REMed and under perfect conditions and matched that target spot on, but then the patient gets home and puts the hearing aid into their ear and they position it slightly different. So you get a lot less repeatability with domes compared to moulds and slim tips. Yeah, a common thing is for us to put a double dome really far into somebody's ear and get a really good seal and, and rem that. And then they go home and go, oh, this sounds quite boomy and occluding. Uh, it sounds better like this. And when they come back in, it's sort of half hanging out their ear and they've sort of just, yeah, it sounds way more natural like that. And of course, it sounds more natural because it's more like their hearing loss. But also we're letting those low frequency sounds escape. They've, they've added their own vent in. Um, so there are limitations to this, but I feel like we've talked around the the answer here of, of, of how, A, how do we know when something is open and at what point do we therefore make a decision to use open REM? So do I give the answer now? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the answer is that um, the answer is that it that it is the zero dB gain line. So if you uh, if you run your uh, unaided response and then your occluded response and your occluded response uh, is zero dB gain or lower, then you can go ahead and use standard equalization or your normal REM. So not using open REM calibration, and the patient can move around a little bit more because we're we're checking all the time. We're getting what we expect. Um, but why does that make sense? So so why does zero dB gain line help us because actually everything getting into the ear successfully the 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 thing we've put in the ear isn't attenuating the sound at all the sound is getting into that person's ear so therefore surely it's getting back out again we're not blocking that sound from from getting in or out yeah i think we discovered a rule about sound dominating event if it had a different like if the yeah explain that how does how does does incoming sound or escaping sound dominate the vent. Yeah, Rob, explain that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's this um, there's an acoustic principle of if you put a sound in a tube from one end and the other, which one's gonna which one's gonna dominate that? Um, and I think it was Dylan's um, reference we went to for that one. But again, it was sort of one of those. It was like finding part of an answer, but not quite on the on the topic we wanted. Um, and I can't quite remember it perfectly, but it's something like um, low frequency sound um, is almost never a problem for the, the, the thing that we're discussing here of what's going to leak out of the ear and get back to the reference mic. It's not going to be low frequency sound that's the issue. It's 1500 hertz and above um, that's going to be um, the thing that will potentially become the dominant sound and therefore escape from the ear. So I I, I will have to go and check the, the rule again. But um, the end of the the end of the case was that um, it's that area that we're looking for. So between 1500 and above, usually about 2, 3K, something like that, that's where you will see that um, that peak in, in amplification that will escape the ear that will get back to the reference mic. So we don't even have to be as, as general as saying, um, you know, we're looking for zero dB gain line sort of across the board. Uh, what we're actually looking for is that we have eliminated the natural amplification of the ear in its open condition because it's that natural amplification uh, that will add on so much more and therefore cause this amplified sound to dominate the direct sound that's arriving from our speaker because we've played it the, the ISTS signal. And I think this point maybe should come before what you've just said but we were also well one of my light trains of thought was that if we were fitting a really a particularly mild hearing loss surely the gain delivered by the hearing aid could be so low that even if it did leak out, it wasn't going to make it into the reference microphone. 
Yeah, that's this is where what the person was probably after when they asked the question was, what's the rule? And actually, the reason we weren't able to find the rule is because there are so many moving parts to it. You know, if you're fitting something that doesn't have a great deal of amplification, then the risk of that amplification leaving is less. But the, the general rule we arrived at was um, very carefully explained to me, very wonderfully by um, Dr. Mueller, who said, because I said to him, um, how, can, how can we say that no sound is escaping when we've just proven that the, the thing we've put in the ear is not attenuating sound? We've just proven zero dB gain means that everything's getting into the ear, so surely everything is getting back out again. You've just said that that thing is not attenuating sound, so how is it getting in the way enough to, to not be a problem? And he pointed out that uh, it's about the resonant frequency of the uh, the open ear canal. So the empty ear canal has a resonant frequency that's a problem for RM fitting. It's sort of 2 to 3K. But if I take a beer bottle and blow over the top of it, that has a resonant frequency. If I fill that beer bottle halfway full and blow over it again, I've changed that amount of frequency or I've changed that, that sound that I will get. But I've not attenuated that sound. I've not blocked it. I've not blocked myself from hearing it. I've just changed the frequency of, of what's happening in that, that situation. So to have a rule that suits everyone is we're not going to have a perfect rule because everyone's ear canal is different and the resonant frequencies of the open ear between individuals vary so much. So I think that's really what it comes down to is this is a rule that catches all of them, all of all of the risky, risky customers or whatever. <laughs> I think that, that, yeah, the takeaway points were there are no downsides to using stored equalization. There is no downsides to um, using that open rem tick box. Uh, as long as your patient can sit still. So if you think you've got a statue-like patient, then by all means use stored calibration as much as you like. The reason why we were being a bit more fussy with this situation is because we were talking about children who won't necessarily sit still all the time. Um, so, th so that was point one is A, there's no downside to using uh, open REM calibration, and B, there is no given rule for when we should and shouldn't use it. But a good blanket rule for um, when we have got rid of uh, that that extra boost to to signal that we give by having an open cavity in the ear, is that we have got the uh, REOG, the occluded gain, down to zero, because that means that we have changed significantly uh, the resonant frequency of the ear to the point where that extra oomph of of added sound that the the ear cavity provides is is going to put us outside of the danger zone so that extra 15 20 db that the ear will add itself at the at the risky frequency of 2 to 3k will have been gotten rid of if you're not seeing that on the occluded gain because and the i guess the the interesting science behind it is the resonant frequency of an open-ended tube if you block the other end sufficiently you double the resonant frequency of that tube and if you reduce that tube by volume by half so if you put a, if you put a dome in somebody's ear and then you put it almost entirely down their ear or you put it halfway down their ear you've doubled the resonant frequency of that cavity twice you doubled it by adding another end and then you doubled it again by putting that end much closer to their eardrum and then the resonant frequency ends up being 12,000 hertz or something that is just no longer a problem for for our fitting well, I have to say, the whole topic has been very interesting. I uh, can't now get out of my head that um, I can't wait for a double dome at the weekend, but I'm thinking more like ice cream than uh, actual uh, hearing instrument products. Um, does anybody have any closing remarks, or are we happy to finish there? 
I think this has been a hopefully a little insight into quite how far you can go down a rabbit hole with, <laughs> with some of these problems. Um, and the person that I got the response to was was perfectly appreciative. But but the next time you get a a, a response from and whether it's ourselves or, or technical support at one of your hearing aid manufacturers or whatever, there, there's sometimes a lot more that goes on behind the scenes uh, than than you might think. So if you end up seeing an audiologist frantically running around a field, not knowing what to do with life, that's probably the customer that Rob spoke to. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Our podcast is Where All Is, and it's a goodbye from me, Chris, and it's a goodbye from Liz. Goodbye. And a goodbye from Rob. Goodbye. Take care, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.